Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. Before we begin today, I just want to warn you that some parts of this show contain references to murder, criminal offences and references to a paper on sexual abuse. So you should be aware that there is some slightly more adult content in this particular episode. Welcome to the second anniversary of the Age of Victoria podcast. This is a two-part show. It's far too long to do in a single session, but by the end of it, I think you'll understand why. We're going to start today with some thank yous, reflections, and listener questions. Then we will get to the best way to celebrate with part one of a Victorian murder. And I know that's going to be popular because I've had quite a few of you asking for it. First, a thank you to all of you for listening over the last two years. This show is for all of you. Next, a huge thank you to everyone who has ever emailed me or left me a review on iTunes. It shows you really care about the podcast and the subject. Also, a huge thank you to the many podcasters out there who've had been good friends of the show. The Australian Histories podcast, Flashpoint History, Pontifacts, History of Aotearoa, History of France, History of Spain, Cult of Domesticity, Feminists Without Mystique, History of Germany, the British History Podcast, Totalis Rankum, the American History Podcast, the Can't Make This Up Podcast, and so many others. Podcasting is such a great community. Thank you. A mega thank you goes out to my first patrons on Patreon. Yes, that's pretty big news. If you didn't hear the recent film review minisode, the Age of Victoria podcast has a Patreon page. I want this show to stay ad-free and independent long into the future. Supporters and lovers of the Victorians can go to Patreon and choose from a range of subscriptions. This lets you support the show directly. This show consumes huge amounts of books, journals, articles, and also has costs of hosting the episodes, the website, and more besides. Any support is extremely gratefully received, and it allows me to keep the wheels on the wagon for another few years. This in turn keeps the show ad-free and independent. Patrons sign up to one of the monthly tiers. You can be a chimney sweep for $3 a month, a respectable governess for $5 a month, a whore-whore toff for $10, and if you pledge the insane amount of $20 a month, you are elevated to the rank of John Brown, trusty and well-beloved servant of Her Majesty. All patrons get their names entered onto the handwritten journal that's going on to the website. All patrons get a mention on the show, and there are various other rewards, depending on the tier. Supporting is easy. Just go to Patreon and search for the Age of Victoria podcast, or go to the Age of Victoria podcast website and hit the Patreon button. I also try to put a link in the show notes, so you can go straight there. As a quick side note, again, if you missed the film review episode, the phrase ho ho toffs 
was Victorian slang, used by the working classes to describe the upper classes, slightly mocking the sound of their laugh. I thought you'd enjoy that bit of trivia. So drumroll please, as we welcome our first patrons. Ho-ho Toff, Michelle Gersick was our first. Thank you. Ho-ho Toff, Michelle Packham was close behind. Our respectable governesses are Rob Coughlin, who is a long-time friend of the show, an all-round good bloke, Jeffrey Rubinoff, Sean Warswick, host of the American History Podcast, and another long-time friend of the show, and Erpso. Thank you, all of you, for being the first patrons. When I started this show, I did it because I'm a Victorian history fan, and there was a massive gap in most people's understanding of the period. Over the past two years, I've learnt a lot, and come to realise just how much of an abyss that gap is, and how terrible this lack of knowledge is for people's understanding of the modern world. The more I learn about Victorian history, and read the works of the experts, the more I realise so much of our view of modern society, and many of the causes of difficulties in it, are based on some very dubious views about the triggering events in the 19th century. Obvious examples are the lack of understanding of the US Civil War, or slavery's role in financing the British Industrial Revolution, but also things like, say, how Australia got to be Australia, or how medical statistics, used as a public health tool, came into being because of Victorian concerns about urban growth, or how the mass migrations of people caused by demographic changes and climate changes were more than just imperial expansion, but did lead to worldwide disturbances. I hope that so far this show is helping to bring a complex series of events and the strange, often random actions of key people into full view. I think the Mount Tambora series was my favourite illustration of this. It showed how climate change can trigger mass migrations or immense political upheaval, as well as having tragic impacts on individuals. It helped us to think about how we would cope without all our vaunted technologies. I'm also pleased with how people-focused this show has managed to be. A lot of popular history gets told along the lines of, say, Empire A invaded the Balkans, and that destabilised the area, leading to increased military engagements, and the Battle of X happened on the River Danube. Looking at you, History Channel. You could listen to that narrative. It could be early or late Romans, the Byzantines, the Ottomans, the French Empire, or others. What gets missed is who was involved, how they felt, the tools they used, the food they ate, the clothes they wore, why they opposed one invasion and yet invited another. Looking back on the age of Victoria, I'm glad I've been able to show you the people and their feelings. This hit home for me, especially in the Princess Alice disaster show. Doing the research on that was painful, particularly with all those poor children involved. It also annoyed me immensely that the histories talking about the disaster 
almost entirely focused on lists like the top 10 maritime disasters in the UK, and they lost sight of the real human cost. All in all, I'm pretty pleased with the last two years. I learned more about gin and fish and chips than I ever thought there actually was to learn. I loved the listener response to the Dickens Christmas special and then the ghost story. It has been a treat to get to the Victoria episodes and find I had not one, but three Disney villains for the story. Sir John Conroy, the Duchess of Kent, and the Prince Regent, a.k.a. King George IV. Somehow, despite the true awfulness of the Prince Regent, I came to love finding the next example of his total ghastliness. He was selfish, utterly stuck up, a shocking spender, a bigamist, a horrible person in general, but also totally larger than life. He leapt off the page of history in Technicolor. Conroy lurked in the background more. In a way, he was a better person than George IV. He didn't have political power and use it to oppress the poor or to urge the government to use troops on reformists, nor did he cause the national debt to balloon. He should be more likeable than George IV, yet the more I read about him, the more I felt he was somehow worse. It struck me it was because he was the more human monster, the kind we've all met in our day-to-day lives, educated, well-mannered, well-bred, intelligent, corrupt, charming, manipulative, and abusive behind closed doors. If George IV was almost a pantomime, then Conroy was the real-life monster who used and abused people without remorse. I'm sure if he was king, and not George IV, he would have done far worse. Other people have also really stayed with me. Sir Stanford Raffles, the dynamic proto-empire builder and scientist, had to try and cope with Mount Tambora the marvellous, dynamic and beautiful Annie Besant, leading the matchstick girls to war with the establishment. Totally fell in love with her. The astonishing Charles Fry and the awful Beatrice Sumners. I've also had such amazing listeners from all over the world. I will be honest and say that I didn't think that much about Australian history until so many listeners from Australia got in touch with their family or town histories. I'm grateful for everyone who shared. You'll find there will be plenty more Australian history in the show fairly soon. More than you thought, with a few perspectives you wouldn't expect. Perhaps covering things you wouldn't have considered. I also had listeners from the US, Canada, and many more, who were really engaged with the literature side of the show. Shelley and Byron struck a chord, as did Dickens and The Christmas Carol and The Ghost Story. I can only hope Emily Dickinson, Elizabeth Gaskill, Rudyard Kipling, or the others are just as interesting. I'm delighted to have some listener questions to answer next. Long-time friend of the show, patron, listener, and all-round good bloke Rob from Australia asked, 
I'm keen to know what sparked your interest in this period. You obviously have a passion for the period. And listener Melissa also asked a similar question. I do have a passion for the period. People are often surprised, as the Victorians seem to have a very bad reputation. That's usually because either people don't know them very well, or they just loathe the image of the British Empire and don't think about all of the other things from the period. I became interested in the Victorians when I was in my teens. Plus, my dad took me on trips to every historic site going, including those linked to the Industrial Revolution. I have fond memories of a trip to Ironbridge and Colebrookdale. I read books on military blunders and noticed that the Victorian period kept cropping up. I also got interested in politics, railways and the history of medicine. So those naturally sparked a growing interest. Add in some Sherlock Holmes, some Emily Dickinson, some George MacDonald Fraser, and I was soon fascinated. Rob also asks, From several tweets, I have gleaned you have an interest in fashion and also in paintings. Did this arise from your interest in the period, or precede that interest? I do have an interest in art. That isn't limited to the Victorians. I liked it when I was young, but nothing in particular. Then at university, I met a girl, and she liked art. The girl is gone, but the interest in art grew. I found Victorian art was really fascinating, as it was a period of technical transition, an immense investment in a lot of underlying social themes. In a way, I view it as the last great age of art, before the destructive influence of Manet, Monet and Van Gogh, with the subsequent decline. Next question was, the period you are covering is huge. You could be doing this for the rest of your life and still not scratch the surface. How far do you go? It's true that I can never run out of materials. Proper historians can spend whole careers on individual parts of the Victorian era and barely scratch the surface. I'm hoping that this podcast can keep on going for decades to come. I love doing it, and as long as people are willing to listen, then hopefully I can carry on till I'm a doddery old man about to be shipped off for recycling and my ashes being spread out over Pool Bay. We've got a lot to cover before the next anniversary special. There is Victoria coming to the throne, a catch-up on the political and social situation, then some episodes that are linked in three big themes, I suppose you can call them. A historical earthquake, a historical civilization quake, and finally, what I can only call a world quake. The last one is especially interesting, as it starts with such a trivial thing. Listener Michel Gersick has asked, Being a nosy sort, I wonder what your wife and children think of your passion. You must spend incredible amounts of time researching and recording, but still make time to be a caring dad, right? What other interests and hobbies do you have? Well, my kids are the great joy of my life. My older daughter likes history, but prefers something more bloodthirsty and medieval, preferably involving rebellions and treason and castles, but also Egyptian history and Greece and the Tudors and things like that. She often asks why I don't do a YouTube series and become famous. 
my little boy is too little to care, so as far as he's concerned, it's just something daddy does. My wife is not particularly interested in podcasting, so she doesn't particularly listen to the show. But hobby-wise, outside of family time, I play Dungeons and Dragons once a week. I read a lot. I collect single malt whiskies, watch anything superhero related, and doodle with fountain pens. Listener Nicole has asked if there will be more Dickens. Yes, there will be. He was absolutely key to the early period. He was a brilliant journalist with a keen eye, so he's an amazing primary source. He is also an author of historical importance and a prominent Victorian in his own right. Throw in a couple of recent revelations about his wife, and there's no way he won't get a couple more shows at least of his own. Lastly, listener Michael has asked if there will be a history of medicine in the show. There will be lots of topics that could come under the heading of medicine. I'm not going to do a specific history of medicine. I feel rather it is such an important underlying theme that to just artificially separate it and keep it in one episode probably wouldn't do justice to it. The history of anesthesia alone is something I find fascinating, but is also vital. Likewise, the development of antiseptics, of disposable surgical implements, and so much more, deserve to appear in the show at the right points. So, that's a kind of yes and no, I think. Now, since it is the anniversary, as I promised, I'm going to indulge us with a Victorian murder. Listeners seem to like this. This and tattoos, apparently. But especially, a Victorian murder has been requested. The Victorian era was in some ways the golden age of murder, if you will excuse the term. It was a brutal age, with access to weapons and poisons. Dangerous men and women schemed to get rich and remove any obstacles in their path. A business rival could die in a fire at just the right time. A rich old husband could be such a pain for a young lady and her lover. A wife who drank and talked too much was an easy target for an abusive man, especially as the law was loath to get involved in events behind closed doors. Unwanted children could easily be killed. The Victorian era saw the birth of police forces, but at the start they were more concerned with keeping the Queen's peace on the streets than knocking on closed doors. Attitudes changed though. Temperance, women's rights movements, trade unions and improved education all chiselled away at the causes of crime, forensics and the fashion for detective stories meant professional criminal investigations. Penny dreadfuls and lurid press stories brought crimes into the public gaze, forcing authorities to act. Medicines and poisons became regulated. Courts became fairer. Slums were cleared and street lighting put up. The telegram and the railway made escape from justice even harder. Today, we look back on an age where murder and violence were common, 
and the criminal stood a good chance to escape from even the most masterful detective. Today, murder is an incredibly rare crime. TV gives us the idea that it is common, when actually the chances of being murdered are vanishingly small. We no longer fish bodies from the Thames on a regular basis. DNA and border checks mean few unsolved crimes or the opportunity to take a steamship to the colonies under a false name. In the modern United Kingdom, the murder rate is 1.2 people per 100,000, making the UK safer than France or Canada, and far safer than the USA at 4.9 people per 100,000. Putting a figure like that on the Victorian era is much, much harder. Indeed, the analysis of crime using statistics was a field of intense interest to the mid and late Victorians. Debates raged about whether crime was linked to economic cycles or poverty or increased prosperity, making crime more worthwhile. Whether it was drink fueled or the result of growing up, crime being something perhaps you drifted into when young and grew out of. Debates about crime in Victorian England and Britain rage to this day, and the problems of media distortion or the exaggeration of the role of the media in talking about crime in Victorian England and Britain continue to bedevil the field. Victorian murder weights were higher, especially in London, but the reality was that there were no murder was more common than today, it was still extremely rare. You might be shocked, but actually, people don't kill people very often. You are almost certain not to be a murder victim, or to know a murder victim, even if you walk home alone in the dark. It was the same in Victorian society. Murderers achieved notoriety because they were rare, and they were usually related to the victim in some way. Wives poisoning husbands, or husbands stabbing wives. That was absolutely typical. The Victorians killed a lot, and you need to remember that the murder figures would be for people living in Victorian Britain. They wouldn't cover the various murders and genocides committed by the British overseas. It isn't hard to find accounts Aboriginal people in Australia being murdered out of hand with little or no justice for the murderers despite the Aboriginals being recognised as British subjects and therefore entitled to the protection of British law. Nor would the figures cover murders of British people living overseas. So, for example, a British woman who accompanied her husband to India with her children and was then murdered by bandits during the Indian mutiny would not be in the annual figures for murder. Still, there were murders, there were police, and there were sensationalist newspapers and the infamous Penny Dreadfuls. These blew up the reputation of criminals or killers into the most absurd forms, like the infamous spring Jack part real-life prankster or sexual predator, part urban legend, part ghost story. The gutter press knew what their readers liked, 
and if the truth had to be made up, then so be it. There was proper crime and proper police work, backed by harsh penal measures. Murderers did get caught. In early Victorian England, the bloody code still ruled. Criminal law was designed to be hard and punishment brutal to discourage others. Even when the worst of the bloody code was abolished, the death penalty was almost automatic for a wide range of offences and it could be tinged with surprisingly little mercy. But nevertheless, murder still happened. Take 18-year-old Irishman William Habron who was sitting in jail serving a life sentence for murder. His death sentence was commuted to a life in prison because he was so young. Victorian prison was often a hell that made inmates pray for death. Honestly, can you picture how you would have felt? All of your life cuts down to this one narrow point. One choice you made. One action that took someone else's life. Now all you have is the regret. Maybe you would think you would do anything to take it back. For yourself? For the victim? In this case, the victim was a 21-year-old police constable, Nicholas Cock, who was on a routine night patrol on the 1st of August, 1876. He'd stopped to chat with a friend and another police officer, then gone on with his patrol. He'd stopped to investigate a burglary. The sound of two gunshots rang out, and the young constable was left bleeding on the ground. His friend and the other officer heard the shots, and raced back to him. They got him to a doctor, but he died an hour later. The local police were furious. One of their own had fallen. Not only that, but a young man, unarmed and gunned down. Superintendent John Bent was sure he knew the local criminals who would be responsible. Constable Cock had recently issued summons against the Habron brothers for being drunk and disorderly, and in response, they had threatened to do him. For those unfamiliar with British slang, do him is usually short for do him in, meaning to commit significant violence or murder. Sort of like the mafia, saying to someone they should be taken care of. Superintendent Bent quickly sent armed officers out to arrest them. The officers burst into the room where the three Habron brothers were sleeping in the same bed. The men were questioned and denied any involvement, stating they were all in bed asleep at the time of the murder. This turned out to be awkward for them, since the police then pointed out no one had said when the crime was actually committed yet. Bent was at the arrest scene and noticed the suspects had all got fresh mud on their boots, and the candle was soft, so had only recently been put out. If they had been asleep in bed for the last two hours or more, then why were there signs they had only recently been in the mud, or had had a candle lit? Bent was clearly a sharp-eyed detective. He went to the murder scene next, and had the excellent idea to take impressions of the footprints. 
requiring some ingenuity to get the prints in the rain, he examined the pattern of the nails in the boots and got a match to William Habron. Back at the station, the police searched the suspect's clothes and found percussion caps for a revolver. A respected eyewitness had been approached by an Irishman looking to buy a revolver and some bullets on the day before the murder. He was sure it had been William Hebron and was unshakable on the witness stand. When the verdict came back guilty, the jury did urge mercy to ask the court to convert the death penalty to a prison sentence. The judge passed sentence, saying, quote, You have been found guilty by the jury of having murdered Police Constable Nicholas Cock. It is my duty to pass a sentence upon you. Trial has been long, but not unnecessarily so, for the evidence which had to be adduced against you consisted of a number of small details which had to be proved and all of which had to be carefully considered together. The jury patiently attended to the whole and they found the verdict they have just found. I shall simply discharge my duty by passing the sentence of death upon you. It will be my duty to present to Her Majesty's Government a recommendation to mercy, which the jury have made by reason of your youth. But having regards to the fact they have found you guilty, you must not be deceived. For this murder, which is now found to have been a murder committed by yourself, was a cruel murder, and you must not be surprised if that recommendation is disregarded. However, that does not rest with me, but with Her Majesty's government. End quote. William escaped the death penalty by a whisker because of his age, but now he was in jail. He was even sized up by the hangman before the commuting of his sentence. Superintendent Bent, at least, could feel satisfied that modern Victorian policing and advances in forensics had solved a murder. It was a sad tale. A police officer dead and a man in prison. A young man, perhaps driven by poverty to a life of crime. Constable Cox's family could mourn, but at least they had the closure of knowing the killer was in jail. The little boy they played with as a child was lost, as was the man he had become and the person he could have been. For William in jail, escaping the death penalty was probably little comfort. Victorian jails were hard enough, even for a short sentence. To be locked in for life was a grim fate indeed. Still, do you remember 
when you were little. You came into a room and someone had broken something. You had no idea how and your mum was sure it was you. You got told off. You swore blind you were innocent, that it was your sibling or your dad or aliens, but not you. She didn't believe you and gave you the I'm not angry, I'm disappointed speech. Or maybe it was at school when no one, no one would believe you hadn't done something or said something about someone. And you were in so much trouble with friends and teachers. You had that hot, burning fury inside that just made you seem more guilty. You could cry into your pillow, but the world had judged you and that was it. There's almost nothing more heartbreaking than to be found guilty of something you haven't done. We don't know exactly how William Habron felt, but he was actually a completely innocent man, serving a life sentence for a murder he didn't commit. Can you think how that felt now? Watching the cell door slam closed and knowing that you won't ever get out. No chance to go to a shop, order a coffee and sit in the sunshine. No chance to decide today is the day you buy a new book or chat to a friend. It is the deprivation of liberty that is the punishment of going to prison. Not the conditions inside. Nothing left to do but watch the sands of your life slip through time's hourglass. You can tell the guards you didn't do it, that it was a mistake, that you're not supposed to be there, till you are blue in the face. They don't care. They've heard it from nearly every man or woman dragged in before. The immense power of the state has decided to imprison you. There's no choice in the matter. No bargaining. It is the supreme sanction the state has at the bottom of its power. The right to imprison you by force. William could say or do what he liked, but it was irrelevant. Only an appeal and an overturning of the conviction could get him out. That or a miracle. Happily for William, he was going to get one. In 1879, in an unexpected turn of events, another man, Kung Charles Peace, was due to be executed for murder. He was an infamous career criminal, known as a master of disguise, and a man who had made desperate escape attempts from the police during massive manhunts. He had nearly escaped on his way to his final trial, so getting the conviction was a seriously unlikely event. As his execution grew near, he called for the prison governor and stated he wanted to make a confession. He explained to the stunned governor that he had been robbing the house when Constable Cock had attempted to arrest him. According to him, the constable had tried to arrest him as he was escaping the scene of the burglary. He had drawn his revolver and warned the constable off. That didn't work, so he fired a warning shot, but the extremely brave officer came on, so he gunned the officer down. This was Peace's first murder. It wasn't his last, or the one he was in prison for, awaiting execution. Nor was it the first time in his life that he'd shot a police officer. William had got his miracle, but he'd been in prison for nearly three years waiting for it. You might think well done to peace for at least doing one decent thing before his execution. 
except he'd actually sat and watched William's original trial, presumably for entertainment and curiosity. We know why he didn't speak up at the time, since it would have meant putting his head in the noose, but he was clearly willing to let William rot in prison or go to the gallows, and only did the decent thing when he was caught and his own death was certain. The clues should have been looked at more carefully. Firstly, motive. Was poverty really enough of a motive? Was it really a blood feud with Constable Cox? Or just a bit of drunken aggro? A drinking offence in front of a magistrate is hardly much of a motive for murdering a police officer. Then, look at the circumstances of the crime. If the motive was real, then the brothers staged an elaborate burglary and gunned the constable down. That's pretty complex for a revenge attack, especially using a gun. Guns in England always attract attention. Why not jump the constable on an isolated street and beat him to death? Then there was the lack of eyewitnesses. No one saw the fatal shots. We also need to ask why the boot prints would be so incriminating. Lots of working men left footprints in the mud. There was nothing to link the boots to the actual crime. All the prints said was that the boot had been in a certain place. There was no blood, and the police didn't find the murder weapon with the brothers. Evidence was actually fairly weak circumstantial evidence. While circumstantial evidence can be used to secure a conviction, In this case, it was really weak. The percussion caps probably were more of a shocking find than actual probative evidence. Ironically, not only was William's brother John acquitted, but the judge had made it clear throughout the trial he thought the prosecution case was extremely weak. He had seemed genuinely surprised when the verdict came back. Not that being released from prison after a miscarriage of justice, solves everything. It isn't like a magic wand, where you get your life back, and everything is fine again. Professor Caroline Hoyle, Naomi Ellen Speechley, and Dr. Ross Burnett, have written an interesting paper, on the impact of wrongful accusations, or convictions, called, The Impact of Being Wrongly Accused of Abuse, in occupations of trust, victims' voices. It mostly deals with sexual abuse allegations against persons in positions of trust. So, most of the paper isn't particularly relevant to us. But, it has some striking passages about what the feelings are of an accused person. And they set out some broad reasons how wrongful convictions happen. Quote, Some of the factors which can contribute to the conviction of an innocent person include confirmatory bias in the police and prosecution investigations, non-disclosure of exculpatory evidence, false confessions, dishonest or mistaken witnesses, inadequate legal defence, improper interventions or summing up by a judge, cognitive biases and prejudice of juries, and the influence of media reports and popular opinion on the decisions made by juries. End quote. That 
seems to be what happened in this case. The police went looking to find the guilty person, then looked for evidence to confirm guilt. That's what they are supposed to do, isn't it? Find evidence to see if someone is guilty? Actually, no. That gets it very wrong. Police are supposed to look for evidence of a crime. And, if there was a crime, to find the evidence of who has committed it. The person comes last. And then, if the police think they have evidence that the person committed the crime, the police are then supposed to look at all other relevant evidence to see if there are other alternatives. So evidence really splits up into three kinds. Proving guilt, disproving guilt, or irrelevant. Then, in the same paper, there's this passage on the really devastating impact of a wrongful conviction on the general class of prisoners, not just limited to those accused of sexual offences, which is what most of the paper is talking about. Quote, Serving a prison sentence without having committed a crime has been described as one of the worst forms of victimisation. The mental health damage caused to wrongly convicted prisoners is similar to that suffered by veterans of war and torture survivors. Wagand describes the anger felt by exonerees at having had years of their lives and lost opportunities stolen from them. Asserting their innocence leads to the label deniers and its associated restrictions whilst in prison. Stress continues following exoneration and release from prison. A 2003 study conducted by Life After Exoneration Program of 60 exonerees in prison for an average of 12 years found that nearly half were burdened by depression, anxiety disorders or post-traumatic stress. John Wilson identified the psychological effects of imprisonment for the innocent as shock, disavowal and initial betrayal, a sense of injustice, cruelty and impotence, loss of freedom and a struggle with life's meaning, existential search for meaning, a sense of abandonment by humanity and God, loss of self, identity and dignity, shame and guilt resulting from how they are perceived by others, fatigue and surrender following the journey of endurance, PTSD and other psychiatric symptoms and a need for counselling, connection and transitional periods and services. They cannot benefit from the support that is given to parolees and assisting ex-offenders because they are neither of these. They are the victims of the criminal justice system. End quote. This is what poor William Habron had to go through. Now, it is usually about this point that I remind you of how hard life is for ex-convicts in general and Victorian ex-convicts in particular. Most Victorian criminals were pretty much booted back to the street and left to sink or swim. But for William Habron, things were different. He was part of the celebrity media circus that was Charles Peace. There's a detailed newspaper article 
about what happened after his release. I'll put a copy up on the website in the resources section. Do have a look. Briefly though, he was not told he was being released at first. He got taken silently away from prison by the guards and driven to Manchester, which must have been terrifying in itself. His old employer had stuck by him through the whole ordeal, campaigning for his release, and he had asked to give him the news. The Home Office was putting up large sums of money to be managed by a pair of trustees and covering his travel expenses to get him used to freedom. Public collections were being made and the brothers were reunited. His travel back to Ireland was also to be covered and he was met by crowds of well-wishers in England and Ireland as he travelled. So, much to everyone's surprise, he actually got supported and significantly compensated. Well, that is unexpected, isn't it? I hope all my listeners who wanted to hear about a murder got something unexpected, but fun. What's that? It leaves a few threads hanging, does it? Who was the real killer? Charles Peace, the master of disguise? How did he end up going to the gallows? What do I mean when I say celebrity media circus? Well, since it is the anniversary time, I think we need to know, don't we? You can have two murders for the price of one. And Charles was certainly an interesting man. Interesting enough to be mentioned by Sherlock Holmes in The Adventures of the Illustrious Client. Holmes refers to him saying, quote, My old friend... Charlie Peace was a violin virtuoso. End quote. This was Conan Doyle having a little name drop and joke on his readers, as Charlie Peace was known to be a self-taught violinist of talent. A little nineteenth-century Easter egg for Conan Doyle's fans. But I'm afraid, as they say, I hear the clock chiming on the stairs, and we have to finish for today. But don't worry. We will carry on in the next show learning all about Charlie Peace, the master of disguise. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to give me some feedback or just have a chat or ask any questions, you can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook, on the Facebook page or in the group. Just search for Age of Victoria. If you want more of an informal social chat or a bit of banter, follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Take care and bye for now.